1: Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. This week, we are excited to have Biden confidant and former presidential candidate, Senator Christopher Dodd, to tell us about the developing Biden administration. Then Georgia expert and the host of Battleground Ballot Box, Stephen Fowler, will join us for the latest in the fight for control of the Senate. Two races down there. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and we love these questions. This episode is sponsored by Paint Your Life, United Harvest, and Great Courses Plus. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. And we thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps to make this podcast happen. Also tell your friends about us, remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, James, I uh, hope you had a good Thanksgiving, and you're doing well
2: as well as one can under the circumstances that's that's well put, uh, well put. okay uh, and uh, that's all you can the you truth in right all you can say I, I don't think in you know. We're probably doing better than ninety nine percent of the people because we don't have food insecurity or financial insecurity. Right. But it's this this thing has just been awful, awful. It's both important but and hard to keep that in mind. Uh, at it the is. Same time. It but, is. And I uh, did my class last night, and it my last class of I don't. And it was the only thing I had to live for. It's Tuesday night and Wednesday podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wait yeah, a minute, how about our Sunday said. Zoom calls, James? The Sunday Zoom call, All right? That's right. <laughs> right. You can see what kind of exciting life uh, we have. Yeah. Listen, uh we've got some we got two great guests today. Uh, uh Chris Dodd uh, knows yeah. Joe Biden as well as anyone on the face of the earth. He's very close. They served in the Senate together for uh, almost 30 years. So I don't want to steal his thunder because he knows a lot more than I do, but 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 let me just talk a little bit to start off with about about the Biden um, uh, administration to be. I thought he's getting somewhere between a 90 and a 95 on appointments and tone. That economic team is really impressive that he rolled out this week. You know, both the Clinton and the Obama economic teams were really, really first rate. Clinton had Lloyd Benson, Roger Altman, Bob Rubin. Obama had Tim Geithner and Larry Summers and Jack Lew. This team is just as strong and that's a great compliment. And they may be even deeper. It's, it's, it's diverse. It's talented. They have great academics. They have people who really have, you know, real life experiences and they have a treasury secretary who has credentials like none other in the history of that department. So I got to tell you, I'm impressed, James.
2: Uh, yeah, it's hard not to be impressed. I mean, Janet Yellen is simply, starts out as the most qualified treasury secretary in history. <laughs> yeah, All right. I mean, doesn't just she's had every big position that that you could imagine and yeah, just know, don't tell she, Larry Summers, but you're right. <laughs> okay. Right, I don't tell Larry. <laughs> I mean, she, I mean he, she was, you know, champ, I mean, she, she and by everybody's estimation. And you know, I mean, I thought uh, appointing her showed that Biden was really you know, really understands what a difficult economic time the country is going to be on January the 20th. And I can't imagine how difficult it's going to be because the, the pandemic stuff is getting worse by the minute, yeah. by the minute. And the suffering is just, it's is just unbelievable. I, I mean, th- then it's going to take a, a long time to dig out of this hole. And I'm glad that she's there <clears throat> You know, try to give it some guidance. That's all I can say. It's just, but we're not. I don't think people are emotionally prepared for how 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 this next sixty days are going to go.
1: It is. It's going to be awful. There may be light at the end of the tunnel, but boy, it's going to be a lot of darkness before we get there. Yeah. You know, I would say I think there was one slip, and I'm gonna and I want to say exactly why, and that's Nira Tandon at OMB. Nira is a really intense. A really talented person. She's run CAP. She was in both the Obama and Clinton administration. Uh, and uh, she certainly belongs uh, at a high level uh, in this administration. I think to appoint her to OMB, uh, there'll be a really ferocious confirmation fight. I'm going to talk about the Republicans on this in just a minute. And the Biden team either will lose, which won't be good, or they'll have to use a lot of chits. Uh, to get uh, 51 votes for. And there are other good candidates they could have appointed, and they could have named her head of domestic policy, a really important job. She's a real talent, but she's a lightning rod, uh, and I'm not sure it's worth the fight. And I really like Nira.
2: I I, I agree with you. I agree with Uh, you. I I think you're right on all counts.
1: We'll we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, I have, you know, on this show, James— Uh, James Clyburn even tops James Carville maybe. He is St. James. We think he has been the most important politician other than Joe Biden uh, this year. And I'm going to take issue with him on something, uh, which I hesitate to do. And I hope – in a way, I hope he's not listening. You know, he insists that Marsha Fudge be named as agriculture secretary. And there's sort of an implication, not so much from Clyburn, but from, um, uh, you know, some of the other uh, African-American leaders – Uh, Al Sharpton and others, that, you know, he hadn't done enough in pointing uh, blacks to top post. Well, first of all, let me address that. This guy, I mean, look at this. Look at this team. Will you look at that UN woman from Louisiana? I mean, she is hardly a figurehead. Look at Cecilia Rouse, Princeton dean, head of the CEA, an African-American. Look at the undersecretary, deputy secretary of the Treasury. And you might take a look at Kamala Harris, the vice president. You know, the right. most important post. Five vice presidents have become presidents. So I think that is a total bum rap. And and to go to Marsha Fudge, I, there's two reasons I think that would be an actively bad idea. One, I'm not sure she'd be a great appointment. Uh, there are other African-Americans for other posts like the mayor of Atlanta who would be fabulous appointments. But secondly, Nancy Pelosi can't afford to lose a single other member, even if only for 60 days. She only has a majority of four or five in the House. And to lose that, there are going to be votes uh, that are going to be very, very close, starting with her speakership. And I think to name someone at this point is I'm not sure Cedric Richmond uh, can go on January 21st. You may have to wait a while. And I think that uh, this is a rare case where Jim Clyburn is wrong. Having said that, the Republican hypocrisy on some of this stuff, including Neera Tanden, I couldn't believe Rob Portman said, you know, I don't like the fact she tweets so much. Oh, you don't, Senator Portman, really. I didn't hear you talking about your dislike for tweets over the last four years. Or she's too partisan after you voted to confirm Tea Party's Mick Mulvaney. So I'm not I'm not defending any of the Republicans. And I give the Biden administration to be, as I say, a 90 or 95, but just a couple little small
2: points. Well, first of all, I, you, you don't know what Clyburn what, what is doing here. Uh, you know, these guys, you know, they put that up and said, well, you know, we can't do that. But OK, then they, they, there's a plan B behind it. Right. And I, I, I think that that's what's going on here. And the, the problem also is this, is the Democrats, if you read Tom Etzel, if you read any, anything, if you just use your common sense, we got a problem in rural America. Yep. and I know the ag secretary, the food stamps and the administration of that is a, the big biggest part of it, but symbolically, you, you really want someone from Cleveland running the ag department. I mean, I just think that that that, that, that to some extent it, it's it's. I, I don't. I I think there. I think there's something else on the agenda. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, yeah, I and, hope so. Because you're I, right. you know, well, you tell me no on this, okay, but now how you you can't tell me no on that. Yeah. Right.
1: And, and and they have lots of great options, James. There's, it's not like, you saw that with the economic team. Cecilia Rouse is a, a Princeton dean. I mean, that's Other than being an LSU dean, you don't get any better than that. And uh, she's the chairman, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, as I mentioned earlier, the mayor of Atlanta. So Marsha Fudge, no, but other
2: African-Americans, of course. But there they, they could be other, you know, more desirable. Just, I, 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 they're almost going to have to have, it's going to, you know, be difficult, it, you know, um, they got the defense and, and justice of, you know, the four headline places with you know, state and treasury in place. So it's going to be a kind of a chess match there too. Yeah. I don't know
1: uh, anything inside at all on this. I've talked to a few people who've talked to insiders, but nobody knows. But if, if appointments were stocks, you know, I might buy a little Jay Johnson right now. Uh, I don't know for what, but, uh, you know, it seems to me, extraordinarily capable guy. Lots of government service, but in the Pentagon, um, a distinguished lawyer. So,
2: you know, we'll see. Yeah. And, uh, of course, there's a lot of that, but uh, Michelle Fauner, you know, that mm-hmm. she's in the same firm that Tony Blinken is, and they're going to have to disclose. And the fact that it's being held up is, you know, there, there's a lot going on underneath the water here. We yeah, yeah. We can only speculate. We can only speculate.
1: Speaking being underwater, there is the current president of the United States, um, who he gets more, I think he gets more disgraceful with each day. I mean, he's delusional. Uh, and the people around him, I can't imagine bringing in a crowd like this. And I guess what's so stunning, it's hard to tell my kids this, but there was a point in our life where Rudy Giuliani was a fairly admired person. I mean, particularly after 9-11, but even before that. As a prosecutor, and now he is just nothing but a nutbag. And another lawyer, Joe DeGeneva, was also a pretty Uh, admired prosecutor who this week said they ought to execute the person who said it was a
2: fair election. I mean, James, where do they get creatures like this? But first of all, I've met Rudy Giuliani. I know Joe DeGeneva. Yeah, you know, as a guy, you'd see him at the palm, and he'd come by. He was, he was a Republican. Hey, how you doing? You know, what's yeah, going on. It's yeah. Mary. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it, boom, boom, boom. And uh, he was the special counsel that investigated Margaret and Janet about the passport thing, and apparently did a thorough job, for all I know. Right? And he was a, a, a kind of part of the, the Washington. You know, conservative legal establishment. In contrast him with a guy like Ben Ginsburg, who is bigger than than Joe Genova, You know, who, who's totally uh, vindicated himself. Is to- totally. I mean, just we've had him on the show before. But DeGeneva, in, in, you look at you, look at Sidney Powell. L- look at her resume. I mean, she looks like a, a substantial person. As you pointed out, she finished uh, University of North Carolina Law School in two years. She was a federal prosecutor. She prosecuted right. the guy that killed that federal judge. She looks like a like a Republican, you know, was a Republican Junior lead woman or something. I mean, she's perfectly acceptable resume. In fact, an impressive resume, and she's like completely crazy. I mean, what happened to, what, what, what went through Joe Gimeno, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell? Where they're like Glenn Beck. I don't understand it. Well, the only I explanation,
1: really I, I agree. only explanation I can offer, and I hope my daughter's not listening to the show because uh, she hates for me to in any way insult dogs. If, if, if you lie down with dogs, you get fleas. And by that, I mean, if you're around Trump, you're going to be tainted. There's almost no exception. Uh, he just does that to people, and they make the choice, and they pay the price. And you're right. Ben, ben Ginsburg will be a respected figure 10, 20 years from now. Rudy Giuliani will be a joke as long as anybody remembers his name.
2: I, I, I just—I would love to, when this is all over, I, I hope somebody, a, you know, really good journalist or historian or something, really tries to explain this because it, it utterly makes no sense. And, I mean, they, they get laughed out of court. I mean, they get laughed out of court.
1: By Republican and, judges, including a Trump-appointed judge.
2: I, I mean, but there's, there's no—and they, they, they just, just keeps digging deeper and deeper right. and deeper and deeper. It just—it it makes utterly no sense. Hey, James, this year it's taken a little creative
1: thinking to make the holiday season special. Luckily, we have found one way to bring us all together safely.
2: I think this is almost the perfect Christmas gift because this is a holiday gift or whatever you want to call it. But, 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 but I just think this is just one of the most thoughtful things and best ways to memorialize. You know, we have to memorialize, you know, hard times as well as great times. And families are struggling. And I think I know my family would, you know, I'd love for my grandchildren and great-grandchildren to have a picture of if we could be together, uh, like this. Well, these with, paintings with
1: are truly unique and personal, and they and they and right. they paint at yourlife.com. dot com. You can have your painting done by hand from a world class artist from any photo,
2: and it is at an affordable price. James, right, right. I I just think it's I I think that you know a necktie is not going to get it done this Christmas. All right. A a it's just not it's not what people are looking for. Yeah, you know, you know and you set a new set of knives, but I think something like this really etches into the memory of a family. And I, I, I just, I really, you know, and I'm a big I come from a big family. You know, I love family stories. And I think this is something that would, you know, my, my grandchildren would, would go back and look at. This is, you know, so I, I, I think this is just a terrific, just a terrific idea and something that is unique and different. Yeah, but if you it's... want to buy a necktie and socks, get a necktie and socks.
1: You're not going to send me socks, James? I'm so I got so many.
2: You know, you get old. <laughs> hey, what am I doing with all the goddamn socks I got? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Listen, it's quick and it's easy. You can order a custom-made hand-painting portrait in you know, less than five minutes. Uh, you get to choose from a team of world-class artists and work with them until every detail is perfect. Then you get your hand-painted portrait in about three weeks
2: yeah I, I look I, I mean I'm, I'm really serious I'm not uh, you know again I' I'm, I'm a, you know I'm a spinner but this, this just seems like the, the, the sweet spot but, I mean I mean that.
1: Well I don't know if my daughter's listening or not my son listens I know my daughter sometimes listens uh, but I uh, expect something special if I can get it back by December 25th. Uh, at paintyourlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, uh, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off in free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, text the world politics, the word politics, to 64,000. That's 64,000. That's text politics to the number 64,000. I'm writing it down because I'm going to do it today. Text politics to 64,000 or look for the number in our show notes. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most, especially during this holiday season this difficult time. Hey, James, our next guest is at the center of the universe. I don't mean the American universe. The whole eyes of the world are on Georgia, which in a little over a month has two Senate races that will determine which party controls the Senate. Uh, We have one of the real experts on Georgia politics, Steve Fowler, of Georgia Public Broadcasting. He covers elections. He covers voting in Georgia, uh, and he's really good. Why don't you start off, James?
2: So, so Stephen, I'm sitting here actually up uh, in Mississippi. And of course, I watch everything and read everything. And I got a lot of friends in Georgia. It looks like that the Republicans in Georgia literally, and I'm not saying this because I'm a Democrat, of course I am. It looks like they literally lost their minds. I mean, what does it feel like on the ground? I, mean, I watched the uh, Deputy Secretary of State last night. I mean, it, it feels like people are having a nervous breakdown Is is. Is, is there something that I'm missing or what is it like on the ground? You, you've been doing this for a long time and you followed closer than anybody.
0: Well, <clears throat> well, you know, it, it is a very, very unusual site, to put it mildly. Uh, I've been covering Georgia politics for the last two and a half years, starting with the 2018 governor's race, where Brian Kemp, who was then secretary of state, ran against Stacey Abrams who was uh, a voting rights advocate and I thought that election was uh, a very knockout drag out fight over voting and elections and then 2020 happened and 2020 like every other aspect of this year just amped things up into overdrive and you know you have to remember that Georgia is a Republican state with a Republican governor, a Republican secretary of state, Republican state house and Senate, and all of the rules and laws governing voting and how the vote count happens is made and enforced by Republicans. But uh, Republicans aren't Trump. I mean, Trump is a Republican, but he is his own entity. And he's come in like a wrecking ball to Georgia's vote counting process. And you said, you know, center of the universe, it feels more like a black hole just sucking in attention and energy and common sense, uh, just making it where you have the president of the United States, two Republican United States senators, the chair of the Georgia Republican Party, and several prominent state lawmakers, all attacking the foundations of democracy with how voting works in Georgia, and uh, they're not in the minority. So, Stephen,
2: this is one play that I've thought about that I, that I think would would, would put uh, Le- Loeffler and and Purdue uh, in a difficult spot. And that would be if Biden would have picked Sally Yates as Attorney General. And of course, Trump can't stand her. And if he threw that grenade out in the middle of this election, do you think it would? You think it would make him uncomfortable? They'd have to
0: talk around it. Or do you have any view on that? I don't necessarily think so. Um, I mean, the runoff is still, you know, just under five weeks away, which is an eternity. But the message uh, we have Joe Biden, or sorry, we have Mike Pence coming to campaign in Georgia on Friday. We have the president coming on Saturday and then a big televised debate between Senate candidates on Sunday. And so it seems like, The campaigns, at least, are going to try to be laser focused on turning out the Republican base and saying, please vote for us so we can serve as a check on keeping the Senate majority, which is some roundabout way of saying that uh, Joe Biden is going to be president. And they're really, really trying hard at the ground level to make it about turning out votes for the Senate runoff, not acknowledging that Joe Biden is president-elect, not acknowledging that President Trump lost, um, and really just kind of putting the blinders on that way. And I'm not really sure if there's anything else that can be done by the Biden team or by anyone else that can really distract from that other than the president himself uh, continuing to attack Governor Brian Kemp and continuing to attack the Secretary of State and Uh, the so-called Kraken lawsuit that's happening in federal court. But I I think really um, there's really only one person that can put the squeeze on these campaigns and kind of make it a little bit harder to breathe, and that's Trump himself. Go ahead, Albert.
1: Well, let me ask you this. Uh, Are are these races, is there any possibility of a split verdict, uh, or is it so polarized that there's going to be a unanimous decision
0: one way or another? If you would have asked me that three weeks ago, I would say there is a possibility that David Perdue wins and Raphael Warnock, the Democrat running against Kelly Leffler, wins uh, because uh, David Perdue has a little bit stronger footing, even though um, he attacked Kamala Harris right before the campaign, intentionally mispronouncing her name. Uh, Kelly Leffler just out the gate has been unpopular and been dinged for her stock transactions and for, you know, being worth half a billion dollars and all these sort of other things. And she was hammered by Doug Collins leading up to the election. But um, as we've seen the national results come in and we've seen Joe Biden narrowly win Georgia, I think for better or worse, uh, the double barrel race is going to be like most other double barrel races. And whoever wins one seat ends up winning the other because, uh, both the Democrats and Republicans are treating this as uh, running mate campaigns joined at the hip running together. And so I don't think you'll find very many people that look at David Perdue and look at Kelly Leffler and say, hmm, something's different about one of these. So I'm going to vote for a Democrat. And same with the other way. You know, if you're voting right. for John Ossoff, you're going to vote for Raphael Warnock.
1: Do you think, Steve, that Trump, is coming down, he has criticized you, he said the vote wasn't, was fraudulent, uh, it was fixed and all that. In that context, is he going to be able to turn out uh, those voters in rural Georgia and other counties that uh, that voted for him November 3? Will they? Will he encourage them, will it make any difference for turnout for Loeffler and Purdue uh, on January 5th?
0: It's really, really hard to know because- This election has kind of upended traditional thinking about turnout patterns and modeling. You had a record 5 million votes cast in the general election. You're not going to see that in the runoff. The runoff also has most of the early voting period over the holidays. There's not going to be early voting on Christmas. People aren't going to wake up, check under the tree, and then go cast a ballot. Uh, Most locations will be closed. And... So you're going to see more people voting by mail and then showing up on Election Day. But Election Day is January 4th. You've still got the New Year hangover. It's cold. And so there's a really big question mark on what the turnout patterns are going to look like. And then you've got the president, who's long said, don't trust absentee by mail voting. But now you've got them saying that the Dominion voting machines might have been rigged. And uh, those are the only two ways to vote in Georgia. And yeah, that, what, what, we, what we've seen, I mean, before the election, I was up at the president's rally in Rome in northwest Georgia, a deep red base, and about 50 people that I talked to asked if they voted by mail, and all 50, I might as well have insulted their entire family lineage by asking if they used a mail and absentee ballot. So mm-hmm. I think it could come back to bite them.
1: Steve, just to check the record, I said January 5th. Is it January 5th or January 4th?
0: It's January uh, 5th.
1: Fifth. Okay, good. One final question, then back to James. Uh, we talked about the Republican turnout. Uh, how about blacks? Uh, uh, there was a, a, a good turnout on November 3rd, not overwhelming. Uh, the pastor of Martin Luther King's church, Warnock, is running. Uh, what, do you, what, what do Democrats realistically expect for a black turnout on January 5th?
0: Well, you know, people do talk about uh, black voters are the backbone of the Democratic Party in Georgia. There's about 30 percent of the state's registered voters. But the key difference with what Joe Biden cobbled together to win the state and the key difference is going to make uh, the impact in January is, yes, keeping black turnout in the Atlanta area and in southwest Georgia, but it's other groups in Georgia that have grown in population uh, in the last decade or so, like Asian American Pacific Islanders and uh, Hispanic vote, although we've seen some of that uh, peel off towards Trump. And uh, honestly, suburban white voters were ones that maybe voted for Joe Biden and then David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. Um, if they're going to stick with those votes or if they're going to switch. So um, there is no winning Georgia without strong black turnout, but strong black turnout alone is not going to be what makes the difference. James.
2: So uh, in, and uh, this analysis is hard to do, but it, most of the stuff I read says that the, the what, what we refer to as consultants, the share, that the black share of the total electorate, and 2020 or, or 2018 was about the same as it was in 2016. It, it, is that what your experience dictates to you? Is that, is that what you see and as you analyze this so far?
0: Yeah, looking at the data, it is about the same. But I think what some of the analysis misses is that the white share has gone down. And so, yes, right. black share has stayed about the same. It's about 30% of what we would expect before. But it's those other demographic groups yeah. in metro Atlanta that have changed and, you know, enough suburban Huge. white voters that switched.
2: Right. The, the, the other in Georgia is, is probably as big as it is in almost any state in America. The people that, that neither identify as white or black. Mm-hmm. It's, is a substantial part of the Georgia electorate, and is is a real part of the story. Uh, so, I, I saw that Loeffler has a, a new ad, and it's kind of a really soft thing. with a but a black business lady, and you know how she wants to do this. There's, should I read anything into that? But it, it looks to me like her, some of her polling is coming in, and she's not doing as well in in, in Metro Atlanta among. You know, you know, white voters or, or other voters, and she's trying to soften her image up. Is, is that a fair conclusion for me to draw, or what?
0: Yeah. So, if you look at the dynamics of the race, uh, David Perdue and John Ossoff have been known entities. They have identified themselves, and they have identified each other, um, and defined that race. Um, and so, there's not going to be very much wiggle room there. But Kelly Loeffler. Uh, Even though she's a senator, she was appointed, she still didn't have very much of an image out there, and so for much of the last year, she's been trying to introduce herself to voters, Um, but that introduction has largely happened from mainstream news articles questioning her stock trades and profiting off of the coronavirus allegations. And then she's had Doug Collins attacking her for not being conservative enough, and Then she came out with an ad saying she was more conservative than Attila the Hun and posted memes of (laughs) Donald Trump body slamming COVID molecules. And so uh, she's got to do more to define herself as somebody who is simultaneously uh, an ardent defender of the president, but also not so extreme that you alienate the suburban voters that you need to get across the finish line.
2: So one more thing, I'm turning back to Albert. uh, The big news this morning, everywhere I turn around, is these virus numbers are predictably spiking, and people, and you can just read between the lines, the public health people are are literally in a panic stage. What's it like in Georgia? Are the numbers starting to spike there, and could this have some effect on early voting turnout or, or anything like that if it continues down its projected path?
0: Well, the numbers are rising everywhere across the country. Georgia is no exception. It's nowhere near the peak of things um, in the summer when things were really bad. But it's also too soon after Thanksgiving to know if people did heed the governor's warnings to avoid traveling, avoid large gatherings. Um, But in Georgia, Uh, much like you're seeing now with a resistance towards reality of uh, voting and elections and how things are done there, there is a large population that has been resistant to the idea of limiting gatherings and mask wearing in public and taking precautionary steps. And so it's really hard because the governor here hasn't been as uh, iron fisted as other states, but he also hasn't just let the virus run roughshod over people. And so it's a delicate balance to strike that we'll just have to see heading into the depths of winter if enough people are doing the right thing.
1: You, you mentioned that there's a debate on Sunday. You also made a passing reference to Kelly Leffler and uh, charges of insider trading. Leffler and Purdue are both rich. They are really, really rich. They both engaged in, in dubious trading during the pandemic. Now one might argue it was legal. I don't know. A manager made it, but I mean, I don't know why senators are stock trading anyway. Uh, and they made a bunch of money. Uh, Doug Collins said that uh, Leffler uh, profited while Georgians suffered during the pandemic. Does that matter? Do ethics matter in this debate? There's, there's so many other issues that it's just, you know, totally irrelevant.
0: Well, It's really a matter of image and perception. And if you're a Democrat in Georgia, your perception is that David Perdue and Kelly Leffler are super wealthy and out of touch with Georgia, um, and they are not going to do what it takes to make people uh, feel better during the pandemic and get them the need. But for Republicans, uh, you know, there's not as much of a concern because the investigations that have been opened did not find evidence of insider trading, but it's a matter of optics. And there are some people that say, yes, you're a senator, you're worth this much money. Why are you directing stock trades? Why do you not put it in a blind trust? Um, There are some questions about that. But uh, really, with this runoff election, you know, it's either a turnout election or a persuasion election. But really, this election, for Republicans at least, is solely focused on getting President Trump's base to the polls and issues and campaign ads and other things that don't directly address that really don't matter.
1: Well, I would just point out that Leffler and Perdue say they were cleared by the Senate Ethics Committee. The Senate Ethics Committee would clear the Boston Strangler uh, if he were part of the, uh, the chamber. Uh, they have been cleared by a body that clears almost anyone that comes before them. A couple exceptions, but not very many. And certainly what they did was, I mean, at, at, at very best, uh, it, it, it was, it was outrageously distasteful and they made a whole bunch of money. Uh, and they had some inside information. So I, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe there are other things. Yeah.
2: Um, I, I would argue that they need a lot of the same people to come out, particularly like rural whites. They're really kind of Trumpy voters. They, they got to try to bring them out. And I, I, I have no proof of this. But I think all of this stock trading stuff in in you know Leftlet particularly she looks she looks like a, a wealthy person and you know Purdue is and are, are they re- did, did this have some suppressive effect where they said yeah I'm not going to go vote I don't, I don't I don't have any you know I don't like I hate Democrats but I'm just not as motivated as I was in in November and they're kind of gutless I, I think there's some chance that that these stock stories and that kind of stuff can have a, a, a suppressive effect on the Republican base.
0: I think I think it's less the I I mean, I I think it's less the stock stories and more the president and other top Republicans coming out saying that Democrats manipulated and stole the election from him. Uh, You know, the other week the other week, uh, Ronald McDaniel was down here in Cobb County, uh, which is by no means a rural Republican stronghold, but still, you know, Newt Gingrich and others have called it home. In Cobb County, she was uh, shouted down by people saying, why should we bother? Like, if it's already decided, it's rigged, you know, what are you going to do about getting rid of these voting machines and defending the president for a second term? And that's just the reality of the discourse and constant months of hammering, you shouldn't trust the outcome if I lose. And that's probably going to be the thing that has the most suppressive Effects and not stories about stock trading or, you know, a a wealthy person doing things to make themselves wealthy.
1: Well, yeah, I, Steve, I'm I'm sure you're right. That, that stock trading stuff really 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 was ugly it was if it wasn't illegal it was unethical and maybe that's just the way the world is today you don't pay any price in the era of trump but what they both did they ought to be ashamed of uh, even if the voters don't feel that way but i tell you what we're not ashamed of we're not ashamed for having you on this show because you are really good and you have given us really good insights into georgia and i don't suspect you're going to get a lot of rest uh in the next five weeks uh steve uh, so, uh, uh, go to it, uh, and we'll keep checking back with you.
2: All right. Thank you. Thank you. Very, 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 very on point, you know, analysis, just what we needed. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks. Now I
1: want to tell you about an amazing meat company that we've been buying United Harvest and what makes that product so good. James, I'll bet you have an
2: idea. Let's talk about meat. <laughs> this stuff is like first class. It, it's tasty. It, it has a, you can have like a special event to it. This is a, this is a terrific product and a terrific idea. And, you know, it's all locally sourced and local butchers and it has minimum intervention and it, it, it it's quite tasty. And, it, and I'm not a part of the nutritionist or a doctor, but I think it's quite, it's quite good for you.
1: Well, it's a new delivery company founded by ranchers that provides the best cuts of American beef and lamb and that follows the highest standards of quality and animal care. Uh, All of United Harvest's meat is processed in Oregon by an expert butcher and sold directly. So thanks to United Harvest's sustainable farming process, there's no hormones, GMOs, or unnecessary antibiotics. I know exactly what I'm getting and exactly where it's from. As I've said before, I wasn't a big uh, meat guy, but uh, since uh, testing some of these, boy, they are good. And my yeah. wife loves them, too. You can taste the difference.
2: I, 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 I am actually. I eat a pretty good bit of meat. And it's, I don't think that this is my own view, but i express it. I don't think the meat itself is is really bad for you? I think the stuff they put in it. So you to go to these feedlots and they, and they just drum them in front of antibiotics and steroids, you know, and God knows what else. And and these are people that love ranching, that are very good at it, that that don't have all of this intervention. And the product is, is if anything is is tasty than than other stuff. And you know they got a well marble ribeye steak, which is you know one of my favorite cuts. They got lamb chops and. And that why go top sirloin, but, but you go out to a big steakhouse, what you got is you, you're not just eating a sirloin strip. You, you're eating the steroids and antibiotics and God knows what not they put into this. And the same thing is true in these, these chicken processing plants. God, the stuff they shoot them up with, you wouldn't believe. So this is, this is not just a, a, a highly satisfying culinary product. It's a, it's, a, it's a product that you can eat and feel good about
1: Okay, here's what I want you to do. Go to unitedharvest.com, that's unitedharvest.com, and enter the promo code WARROOM, it's all one word, to get the 20% off site-wide with your order of $50 or more. Again, it's unitedharvest.com and use that promo code WARROOM. At checkout, You can also look for the link in our show notes. If you value quality, flavor, and convenience, check out unitedharvest.com and be sure to use our promo code WARROOM to save 20% off your order of $50 or more. Hey, James, our next guest is something special. Christopher J. Dodd served in the United States Senate... For 30 years in the House, before that, he was the author of a number of landmark uh, pieces of legislation, and for over four and a half decades, he knew and was close to Joe Biden. I think Chris was seven when it started. Uh, But uh, other than family, there may not be anybody who knows Joe Biden as well and is as close to Joe Biden as Chris Dodd. and we are lucky to have him today. Christopher, thank you for joining us.
3: Not at all, Al. Thank you, and thank you, James. Looking forward to chatting with you.
1: Right. You are very close, as I said, to the president-elect. Looking at what he's done so far uh, in the months since the election, the appointments, uh, what does it say about him and his
3: likely governance? I think it says, uh, first of all, a lot, and I think it's, it's tremendously positive. Um, first of all, I'll just say, it, Joe is probably, in fact, I, I'd be hard-pressed to think of anyone historically of the past 45 presidents who are as well-prepared to walk behind and sit at that desk in the Oval Office. Uh, he has served longer in Congress, but not just serving in Congress. Chair of Judiciary, Chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. He knows the judicial branch, he knows the legislative branch, and as Vice President, of course, developed an intimate relationship with that office. Uh, so he is, he's, in terms of his knowledge of the three branches of government, uh, we'd be hard-pressed to name anyone else historically who is actually personally as aware of how these uh, three branches should operate independently and collaboratively. Um, And so he's tremendously uh, well-suited for this job. Uh, Secondly, as I look down the appointments he's made, both in terms of the White House staff and the appointments he's made so far, it's a great balance, in my view, Um, it's First of all, you have a number of people who know Joe well, and certainly in many ways know him better than I know him, because they've worked with him over the years. And so whether you're talking about Mike Donlin or Steve Reschetti, Jake Sullivan, Kate Bedingfield now, Director of Communication, you get down a pretty long list. He's got around him a lot of people who know him, know him well, and have worked with him. And then simultaneously, he's been reaching out to people like Averill Haynes, uh, uh, Haines, uh, uh near Tanden, Alexander Mayorkas. These are people I, I suspect he knows, but come to the job with a lot of experience. They know what they're talking about. They can hit the ground, that proverbial line of running. And so I think he's got a great mix of this people he's known a long time, who are talented, understand him, and people coming in as well who are not terribly well known to him, but I think will do a tremendous job for him because they bring experience to the job. Certainly, a Janet Yellen, for instance, at Treasury. Uh, has tremendous experience and background uh, for, for that job. You get on that list. So I, I think it's been a great start for him. And um, you know the challenge is the elusive goal of the more perfect union. and And every administration, I think, tries to strive towards that that elusive, impossible goal of perfection, about expanding the opportunities for people. And Joe certainly has done that with his choice of Kamala Harris, which was uh, of course, historic. Uh, the first woman to head, head Treasury, uh, the first Latino uh, to head uh, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, Avril Haines, the first woman to head the director as Director of National Intelligence, uh, just remarkable. They all women senior positions in communications. He's breaking yeah. ground. He's opening he really up is. The doors. He's telling and and, and like we and we, and we and we and we should point out that Christopher, you were in charge
1: of that vice presidential search committee. Do you think he's been hindered at all by uh, Trump's? You you uh, served through four or five presidential transitions. Trump's unprecedented actions, insane claims, and refusal yeah. to cooperate the way other presidents have is that hindered uh, Biden's uh, ability to hit the ground running on
3: January twentieth? Only to the extent, I mean, I don't think in a, in a practical way they're moving forward very aggressively and carefully uh, to fill these slots. But what it has done is caused even greater erosion uh, in the public confidence um, of, of our institutions. And that's the great crime in my view. We'll, we'll get over Donald Trump uh, at some point here. But there's an awful lot of people in this country who believe what he's saying. And that makes it job for any incoming president that much harder. We've got an awful lot of work to do in the midst of a, an incredible pandemic, economic downturn. Uh, the world has serious problems that need to be addressed. It doesn't help the new president coming in to have the leading president, the exiting president, continue to undermine the public's confidence uh, in the office of the presidency and these critical departments that are so important for the operation of our domestic and foreign policy. That's the damage he's doing to the institutions, in my view. Chris,
1: I'm going to turn this over to James. One question, you were one, I remember back in those days, you were one of the few senators who really worked sometimes with Mitch McConnell. Not a lot of, one of the few Democratic senators. Uh, It's not the easiest task in the world. Do you think Biden can, do you think McConnell
3: will be at all receptive to Biden? Absolutely. Look, I mean, first of all, we're very lucky as we have been historically. You call it luck, call it a blessing. Uh, that that the right person seems to emerge at the right time for us. And Joe Biden is the perfect person in a way. It's hard-pressed to think of someone else, given his abilities, his talent, his background. And his background includes reaching out. We're a pluralistic society. We want to hold on to our democracy. <laughs> and if you've got, you're going to do that, you've got to deal with people you don't agree with. And Joe Biden, I watched him do it with people that no one else could could uh, could work with. And Mitch McConnell may be one of the happier people in town. He, he won his Senate seat. He's not going to probably run again. Uh, he's, depending on what happens in Georgia, he could still be majority leader. And he's got a president he can work with. Uh, and I'm very confident knowing Joe and knowing Mitch McConnell. And while I disagree with the dreadful things that he's authored in the last several years, uh, I suspect he's going to want to demonstrate that he can work with someone to help us get back on our feet again. So I remain optimistic about that. James, so Senator Dodd,
2: I uh, uh yesterday, the day before yesterday, I saw you had a piece in the New York Times, and it, with justifiable pride, you had in your father, and the Nuremberg trials and the accountability that that transpired in, in beginning in December of nineteen forty-six. One can't help but look at what's happened here in the last four years, and not wonder, you know, should there be accountability now? People will say, you know, we just need to move on. We need to put this behind us. It was a terrible time. The country is healing. Other people, like James Carville, would say that you, given the response to the pandemic and and other things that have happened in the executive branch, we just we, we have to have accountability. We have to see what happened. And I took your piece as maybe you and your own way, Having us revisit history that you do believe in accountability, and we we have to be sure that as we go forward, the mistakes and misdeeds of the past become known to the public. Do you share that Carvillian
3: view? Well, I do. As a general matter, I do. I mean, I I, I want to be careful here that, to draw some parallels between right the atrocities of the Nazis. I mean, I, right. I have strong objection. So there's a significant difference. And right. all of this. There's, there's a
2: huge difference. I'm just talking about the general. I, I agree with that, and I should have been yeah. even more clear. I'm not saying that, that this is in any way, shape, or form, but I'm just saying, just what it, what it was at its core is accountability.
3: Well, it, 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 at Nuremberg, it was. I mean, this was an unprecedented event, and it hasn't, hasn't happened since. Uh, so it took the, the courage of a Franklin Roosevelt, uh, a Harry Truman, uh, to move forward. Uh, just as background for you of the four allied powers. Uh, Winston Churchill said, what the devil would you give him a trial for? Let's just line them up and shoot him. Uh, the, the Soviets were far more liberal. They said, let's try him for a week and then shoot them." Uh, and the <laughs> French were kind of had mixed emotions about it. But it was the United States that said we're going to do for them that great line that uh, my father made us memorize a lot of things. One of them was the opening remarks of Justice Jackson at Nuremberg. And Jackson said, among other things in that speech, four great nations flushed with victory and stung with injury." stayed the hand of vengeance by voluntarily submitting their captive enemies to the judgment of the rule of law, the greatest tribute that power ever paid to reason. It's a remarkable sentence, and it captures the essence of Nuremberg. Truth, the facts, and and the rule of law matters. So I believe there will be accountability. It may not happen in a courtroom. Uh, State courts may have something to do with it. Uh, Joe Biden will have to make that decision. I'm sure he's thinking about it. Certainly, he wants to move on. We cannot spend the next two years uh, wrapped up in court proceedings. It may be just what Donald Trump would love, more than anything else, to be the lead story every night on national news and what's happened in the latest proceeding. So I believe in accountability. I think there are more than one way of achieving it. And I would also understand if Joe decides that he wants to move the country forward and, and close this chapter as much as we can. So that's how I would look at it, uh, James.
2: Okay. So, so to bit if our call your career, you had a particular interest in children's issues. I think that this yeah. is something that you've always had. It's got to, you know, how would you advise the the President Biden, as we move beyond this pandemic, the effect on children, and particularly marginalized children, or poor children, or even middle-class children, in development, and being out of school, and, and God knows what now, has got to be profound. Do you have any kind of general ideas of how we can Move forward and, and 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 help these young people uh, uh, around the country because it's it's just going to be an, an, an awful issue and people being out of school and social development. It, 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 I, I just shudder when I think about it.
3: No, I couldn't agree more with you. I've got a I've got a 15 year old daughter who's going to school virtually um, and has been virtually almost the last year now, and and it's you know it's working and the schools doing their best job to make sure they're getting an education. But, but she misses her friends. She misses the social activity, the athletics, all of those things that are part of that life. And to be a 15-year-old uh, and, and not have the chance to that kind of engagement, uh, I think is unhealthy. Uh, and I know a lot of parents feel that way and educators feel that way. One thing I, I hope that, that Joe Biden might pick up, I've never talked to him about this, although I gather they concluded it as part of their economic plans. There's a pending piece of legislation. My former chief of staff and my campaign manager, uh, a, a congresswoman named Rosa DeLauro. Uh, <laughs> I know her husband well. <laughs> I know. Them, I know post you know them <laughs> well. And I started standing polling back in 1979. But and Mark Rosa's Warner, kind of one time, was your
1: chauffeur. You've 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 trained a lot of people, Chris. I trained a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> I interrupted. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No,
3: <laughs> but but the refundable uh, tax credit idea and and the direct payment uh, to children with a stroke of a pen. Uh, right now, members of Congress would qualify for that because of income protections. If you reach down into the levels of poverty with that proposal, you can make an immediate difference for these children's lives. Uh, We we did that with the elderly, and it worked. We took the poorest sector of our population, the elderly, and we took them out of the depths of poverty. Uh, And it's a great success story. And it was a fight to get it done. We can do the same thing with children. And I hope that Joe Biden, and I'm confident they will, because they've demonstrated already they care about it. Joe was always a great ally. When I was doing those uh, bills on family and medical leave and the health care provisions with children, uh, he was always a great supporter of what we're trying to push forward. That's one bill, as well as the child care legislation. I authored that first bill since World War II back in the 80s, um, and and it made a huge difference to people. And today, we need to make sure you can keep those doors open. Uh, You can't get women back to work and men back to work if they cannot place their child in a safe, secure place. And so that's got to be an immediate goal to get those doors back open, make sure they can be clean and safe, and children can uh, begin that learning process that is so critical. So I'm confident that'll be part of the agenda. And lastly, I'd mentioned zero to three, and that is the brain development of children. Uh, uh, Mark Shriver and others have really worked hard on this over the years, and we don't pay much attention, but science will tell you categorically that if that child gets the proper treatment and care... And that, that span of zero at birth up to three or four years old, it can make a huge difference, James, in that child's development in in, uh, in the in the coming years. So I hope the zero to three programs, the child care, and getting that refundable tax credit back to poor children would be a major part of their agenda starting out.
1: Well, uh, I, you know, I I, I I just want to concur with James on that uh, you know marvelous uh, piece you had in the Times—a letter about your dad in and Nuremberg and Justice Jackson—and I hope I hope we can still see the video that he showed that day, um, uh, Chris. Is that still available? It it is, and. Um, In fact, he became
3: a little piece of history. Uh, Just
1: just let me interrupt to say for listeners, uh, Chris's dad later became Senator Thomas Dodd, was one of the chief prosecutors under Justice Jackson at Nuremberg, and this is what we're talking about.
3: Yeah. Uh, It was the summer of 45. He wrote my mother every single day. I published my father's uh, letters to my mother. He wrote 400 letters every night. Uh, In the fall of 1945, Wild Bill Donovan. Uh, for your listeners may remember that name. He was the head start of the o- OSS, and he was Robert Jackson's number two at Nuremberg. They couldn't get along with each other. Uh, they had terrible disagreements. And so uh, Donovan leaves in the fall of 45, and Jackson asked my father, my father was 38 years old, uh, to become his number two at the proce- first prosecutions. And so he had 180 lawyers underneath him for the next uh, uh, almost 11 months. Um, to try and manage the, the, uh, our part, uh, of the, of the trial itself. Uh, and it was a, wrote my mother every night explaining what was going on. It's a great first draft of history today. We'd be sending texts and emails of two or three lines, but each of the letters were eight, 10, 12, 14 pages long, handwritten every single night. I only discovered them in 1993. I didn't know they existed. I was a year old when he went to Nuremberg and, um, And I began reading them. And I'll tell you one thing that that he says in a letter written on June 1st, 1946. He's a much older voice by June of 46 than he was in the summer or the early fall of 45. And he says to my mother in that letter, I will never do anything as important in my life again. Uh, This has been, I hope the rest of the world takes note of what we've done here and will follow the law uh, that we tried to set here uh, about, about this kind of behavior in the world. And, and, and I think back to his life, it changed everything for him. The human rights issue was a dominant theme of his service in public life thereafter. And it was pretty provocative in that moment of his life at age 38 or 39 to recognize he'd probably never do anything as significant again as being involved in an historic trial of that magnitude. So we all learned about it growing up around our dining room table. He told us stories about individuals and people, the atrocities he saw, that film he showed for the first time on on uh, November 29th, 1945, 75 years ago, this past Sunday, set the tone, and where he said basically, facts are important, the truth is important, and the rule of law is important, and that's relevant today. Is what we've been through with truth and facts and the rule of law seem to be taking a back seat. So, thank you,
1: uh, Alpha. Well, mentioning. no, 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 it sure is. And everybody, you ought to get that book that Chris wrote. Those letters really will, will uh, they're, they're marvelous, and they're, they're some of them are quite emotional. Uh, to Mm -hmm. read, and I I, I want to get that video. Chris, I hate to do this, but I'm going to, you know, do a transition to crass politics now. Uh, uh, And that is, uh, it was a great victory for the Democrats with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But uh, down ballot, it was quite a disappointing night. Do you have any theory as to why?
3: Well, I I, I don't. I mean, it's a, um, you know, because there wasn't any campaign, per se, that we can point to that urged people to, you know, Make sure you give us divided government. Um, you know whether or not it was uh, th- that people were sending a message that they that they wanted um, uh, they wanted their their Congress uh, uh, to be Republican, more Republican than certainly anyone imagined it would be. They wanted to get rid. When you have almost now, what is it, number five, six, seven, eight million people uh, said they wanted a change at the top. Uh, and that was pretty clear, uh, given the votes that occurred across the country, uh, and the electoral college outcome. Uh, so there may have been that that thought. Uh, uh, I, I want Joe Biden to win. Uh, I'm worried about uh, reaching too far, either economically or in foreign policy. And so I'm going to uh, I'm going to go in and, and do what people did in the state of Maine. And we were just talking about that earlier. Uh, Susan Collins won handily by nine points, I think it was uh, statewide. When Joe Biden was carrying the state of Maine, the congressman in the second district, the Democrat, carried his his district pretty pretty substantially. And Donald Trump swamped it uh, tremendously and won that second district overwhelmingly. So uh, there clearly were uh, different messages occurring. Uh, it's the first time I've seen party uh, party votes splitting in recent memory. Uh, it used to happen all the time, but it looked this time that people actually spent more time on a ballot maybe because they were mail-in ballots. The people labored over them longer than they do when they normally go in and cast a ballot on a machine or only have that 30 or 40 seconds with someone else is waiting behind them in line to cast a ballot. So I think these um, early voting mail-in ballots may begin to see a return of people spending more time thinking more about what message they want to send as a voter. And that may have had a lot to do with it. It's my view. James. So Senator, first of all, the, the common
2: conventional wisdom there are no swing voters well guess what they are there yeah. are right and, and yeah. one of the points that I, I, I would make that I like to make and I, if you like it you can make it when, when people call you it, Florida in 2018 passed the felons right to vote with over 60% or better to vote Florida in 2020 passed a $15 minimum wage with 60% of the vote maybe there's something wrong with the campaigns that we're running in Florida all right? Mm-hmm. Maybe yep. we had, may, maybe, the, the you know, in, in 2018, it was three words, protect pre-existing conditions that stuck with people. In 2020, there were three words that stuck with people, never uttered by Joe Biden, but defund the police, all right? And yep. I, I think the country is very open to the application of, of smart interventions on behalf of the government to make people's lives better. I don't think what I think the country was saying is we don't we're not looking for radical, systemic, bottom up, explosive change. That, that that's my view. And I think the 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 fact that you get sixty percent of the minimum wage and you get forty seven percent of the vote, I think is a is a message in there to people. I really do. And I, I just make that no, point I agree to you. Me. I think
3: you're dead right, uh, James, on that point. And and I and again I think messages we sometimes, you know, the messages get when they when they're compound sentences and paragraphs long, and I say that respectfully. I understand, but people they're smart enough to figure out what you mean by it, uh, but they'd like some clarity with it as well. And um, and and if you you know if you get the wrong words on this thing, and and you saw Donald Trump take advantage of this, you know, make America great again. Uh, everyone laughed at it and so forth. Uh, but there were a lot of people. He didn't have to say much more. It was a very pregnant phrase, to use that expression, because there was an awful lot of messages included in that message. Uh, in a sense, I think if we keep some of our messages shorter we, and leave it up to people to understand what we're driving at, we can get better results on exactly the points you're making. Those two ballots you talk about, I mean, a $15 minimum wage is very clear in allowing people who clean up uh, after they get out of prison to have the right to restore their, their civic rights rights. Uh, here is a very clear, straightforward message. Uh, it's not com- confused with a lot of alternative message simultaneously. And I think the more clear we can be, the more concise we can be, and leave it to the voter to explore the deeper, greater meanings of that, I think we would do better. So if that's your point, I agree Couldn't
2: with you. There, we are, we're, yeah. we're in vigorous agreement on that. No, I mean, no. really vigorous agreement, no. to say no. vigorous. Least. I love that. Chris Dodd, you've been a wonderful
1: guest. You know, you, uh, we both go back quite a ways. I think about a lot of people that we wish were here to watch Joe Biden when he's sworn in on uh, yeah. uh, on January 21st, of course, members of his family who aren't here, but two I think of in particular that I think you can I uh, uh, certainly yep. identified with her, Ted Kennedy and Fritz Hollings. Boy, would they love this, huh?
3: Uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, I, I got one more final wait, question. Wait, wait, I wait, wait. Discuss. Let wait a minute. Let right. let, okay. let Chris
3: respond to that. Uh, okay. Well, I think you did, right. I mean, uh, Teddy would be driving Joe crazy uh, in the sense he'd have a million <laughs> ideas every hour, the things he ought to be taking on and doing. <laughs> and, and, uh, and Joe would be trying to get someone else to take the calls. Uh, but Teddy had a great joy of life, and he, had, he cared deeply about policy and ideas, and Fritz Hollings just would have loved the idea. Uh, you know, I was with Joe. Joe gave the eulogy at Fritz Hollings' uh, funeral service in South Carolina. And it was a great event. It, you know, it was one of these things the Congress is out of session. The pandemic was kind of kicking around and so forth. And so it wasn't a, there was a lot of turnout of South Carolinians. But, but a handful of us, like Weich Fowler and myself, uh, were there. And uh, and obviously, Joe gave a great, a great eulogy. So you're dead right two people who are enjoying immensely uh, what's unfolding. And they'd be very proud of what he's doing and the diversity he's attracting to his new administration, uh, keeping those people he knows well around him who know him, a great combination. Uh, It's very smart. It's exactly what Teddy'd be recommending and Fritz would be as well. So
2: James, James, wrap it up quickly. when this pandemic is over and I go back to Connecticut, where should I have my first pizza?
3: Well, you got (laughs) to be careful. now. I have a daughter who's going to start as a freshman. She's taking a gap year at Yale. And so I'm not going to screw things up for her by making a recommendation and ruining her first few days at Yale next fall. So you got to <laughs> Sallys or Pepe's. You're just going to try and get me in trouble. Thank God I don't have to run for office anymore. But I'm sort of a Sally's guy. I mean that's what I'd recommend. But Grace will have to make up her own mind. All right.
1: Listen, I want to <laughs> tell you we have been honored to have you on the show, Christopher J. Dodd. We look forward to seeing you when this whole thing is over. And best to your family.
3: Well, thanks. This is thank a great program you've got. I'm a faithful listener. and so Thank um, you, sir. Thank you holiday so much. Season sir. As well. You bet. Yes, sir. S- same to you, Chris. No matter what
1: stage of life we're in, there's never been a better time to keep learning. And that's what The Great Courses
2: Plus is all about. Boy, is it? I mean, that, the, 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 the idea that some, a person can get this kind of expertise and this kind of knowledge just sitting in your living room, I, I, I mean... 20 years ago people would have paid a fortune and that there's literally not a topic that you can think of that they don't cover but this is a stunning product and it's a really a stunning product for people like us who who are seniors who you know actually have more time than than most people but you know who love learning and you know we have a particular interest in in history and military affairs, and but anything anything that you anything you're interested in you know his, you know, they, they don't just have the history of art, they have the history of art in, you know, in Holland in 1675 or whatever it was. I mean, it, 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 the, the granular detail that you can get here is just unbelievable.
1: Yeah, it really is. The Great Courses Plus, they offer unlimited learning at a time when we need it most without the added pressure of homework or grades. And you're right. You know, you and I love the history, but we're also going to use it to train the three-month-old golden retriever puppy because they have a great course on yeah, that, I think, too, well, I I can't.
2: I can't train it. I like dogs, but I can't get them to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that the most relevant one they have right now and the next one I'm going to do is on white-collar criminal law. Because I got a feeling that that's something we're going to be discussing quite a bit in the coming years. <laughs> uh, so
1: join us now and sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. And right now, our listeners get a free month of unlimited access. That's access to any and all courses for an entire month, completely free. So don't wait any longer. Sign up today using our special yeah. URL. Start your free month at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash war That's all one word. And don't forget, GreatCoursesPlus.com slash warroom. That's GreatCoursesPlus.com slash warroom, and you can look for the link in our show notes. Once again, a whole bunch of really terrific questions from our listeners, and it's hard to choose because there's so many good ones. But let me start off with Neil in Sydney, Australia, who asked James about Michael Flynn. He's benefited from a pardon, having been found guilty of a crime. Uh, Now there's a discussion of other officials, family members, and everybody else under the sun receiving pardons prior to January 20th. Pardons for what, he asked.
2: How does it work? I mean, you know, what do you do? (laughs) Well, first thing is, as soon as I get my second shot, you can meet me at the Sydney Airport because I think I'm going to go there. <laughs> been, no, there's hope. I've, there's hope now, I've James. Been, <laughs> I've been, I've been, to, I've been to Sydney. You know, it's a that, you, that 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 opera house is one of those things, and that you see it, and it's actually as gorgeous as you think it is. You yeah. know, sometimes you, you see something. And you go, Oh well, all right, I've seen that before. They, that not Sydney Harbour is 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 one of the true great treasures of the world. So Michael Flint is another person. He was a distinguished soldier. He really was, and he, he he was considered to be like a smart guy. He had, he had respect around, and he went totally nuts. Yeah, totally nuts. And and this is the the great mystery to me is what drove all of the. And I'm sure he was a Republican. I'm sure he was a conservative. That that was so be, be typical of a general officer at the time he was coming up. I just I cannot explain Michael Flynn. I cannot begin to explain him. Other than he wanted to make a lot of money, which was clear, which I, you know that that's a, that's a that's a whole other problem. Of uh, 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 that, you know, the, one of the biggest revolving doors in all of Washington are these re- retired generals and admirals. Right. But I, he was a smart guy, and he 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 was a a, a highly respected soldier, general officer. Yeah. Who, who went bonzo? And you know what? The not Sidney Powell is representing him. If you would have looked at Sidney Powell five years ago, and and you would have looked at, at 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 men five years ago, you would have you would have said that they are impressive people, and and the same goes for so many people. That are, you know, Joe DeGeneres, I, 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 I'm sorry, well, the, I, I wish I had, had a know, better answer for you. The
1: interesting question, really, is the other way around. Who has not been tainted by him? It's almost impossible to think of anyone. You know, let me just add uh, to Neil, we, but some we, we, people we, we ought to remember— yeah, but it was those who got close to him, almost without exception. Let me let me yeah. just go to Neil's question and say, when Michael Flynn accepts the pardon, that is tacit to an admission of guilt. I mean, I'm sorry, it is. So he can't say he's been cleared because he has not been. Uh, secondly, Michael. Flynn became a serial liar. He didn't just lie to the FBI. He didn't just lie to uh, Mike Pence and the press secretary about his involvement in conversations with the Russians. He lied about his lobbying for Turkey. He lied about his lobbying in the UN uh, on behalf of Israel. So he 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 really deserved what he got. And now he's going to run around saying that I'm an innocent man. No, I mean, you
2: know, first, of all, first of all, he pleaded guilty. All right. And this is something, you know, I don't. Practice and practice law and God knows whatever. Do you know how long it takes to enter a guilty plea? That the judge says, "Okay, are you in any medication? Did you sleep? Did you talk to your lawyer? Do you yeah. understand?" I mean, it's it's like a forty five minute process. It's under oath. He doesn't have to it. he's guilty. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't. This is not a. If Rudy Giuliani gets a pardon, I guess to some extent maybe he's got to bit something. But I mean, Michael Flynn is con- convicted. Well,
1: I'm oh, sorry, hey, hey, Neil. Quiet. I wish we I wish we could give you a better answer, the but answer. it's just the way I, yeah, I it's, it's the way yeah. the system works. I'm going right. to do something I probably shouldn't do. There's a question from Larry, and I'm going to answer it first because he but he is from Louisiana, James. Okay, and He, said, wow. he we, says he I understand you just said free Louisiana. Sp- he say a hometown. He's, he doesn't say a hometown. All right, okay. But he says he he understands free speech. But when the president of the United States says things repeatedly, that damage democracy is the vote, the only recourse we have. Uh, basically, yes. Uh, you know, presidents are immune uh, from any kind of uh, uh, prosecution for things they say. Uh, you know, the libel laws uh, against, uh, you know, public officials, slander laws are uh, are very difficult uh, to start with. And, yeah, that is basically the only recourse we have other than shame uh, and other than possible criminal action later because some of the things he said may well have had a bearing
2: on things he did. Yeah, possible criminal action. Is, is, is a very important component here. And just so you know, I'm not one of these let bygones be bygones guys. We got to find out what the bygones are before we let them go. Mm-hmm. And my own personal view is that he is a career criminal and career criminals have a tendency to commit crimes. Now, that's just a personal view of mine, but I, I, I think that we needed an exhaustive look at a, at, a, at a lot of things on a lot of different fronts here. Because well, he might you'll be see immune next. from 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 libel laws. He's not immune from bribery laws. You'll see next.
1: Uh, well, you know the other thing also is any grand jury can can uh, can call him uh, can call people before that, and if they've been uh, you know uh, pardoned, right. he's pardoned himself. Uh, you know he has to testify under threat of of uh, right. a penalty of perjury. Right. The reason I asked the question, Louisiana, because the next one is really for you. How should black leaders in the South understand or navigate the tension? This is from Matthew. He doesn't say where he's from. Between a universal approach to politics. And the reality of racial discrimination and identity. How does the Democratic Party apply these well, lessons?
2: First of all, if you look at people like Cedric Richmond, or you look at people like Mayor Lance Bottoms, or you look at people like Clyburn, or you know, you look all up, you know, across, or even Latoya in, in New Orleans. I mean, they they, they are, of course, they're, they're leaders in, in in their community, but they're universalist leaders also. I mean, they they understand. Uh, have a a good grip of the whole playing field. And, you know, I think that a lot of them are are just been, you know, excellent public servants, and and I think they've served not just their own community, but the general public as well. I mean, you always have exceptions. Uh, I'm sure you do, but most of the, and I know a lot of Southern, you know, Black leaders, and most of them are, 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 are pretty talented and pretty pragmatic. It's from my experience at any rate.
1: Yeah, no. Uh, I agree with you, uh, totally. Uh, our next question is from Nigel uh, in the UK, and I only regret the fact that I have to ask it, and we can't hear Nigel with that marvelous accent, which makes us all feel less smart, to, uh, ask it. But he said From this side of the pond, I'm amazed there are conspiracy theories suggesting Republican voters, voters this is in Georgia, should not vote for Leffler and Perdue. Would you consider it dirty politics if some non Republican created effective Social media sites was championing a Senate write-in campaign for Donald J. Trump. Well, it would be dumb to do, first of all. You don't want to do it if you're a Democrat. And Roger Stone is already doing it. Uh, he's a nutbag, but he's a right-wing nutbag. I don't think it's going to make any difference.
2: Well, if I thought it'd work, I'd do it myself. Yeah. I, don't I don't want to do anything wrong, with it? Okay. I, I, don't, anyway, my, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have any ethical or moral qualms about doing it. It's totally legal. And I I, my problem is I don't think it be particularly effective and would probably yes. backfire. And good backfire. But I don't have a I don't have a uh, issue at all. In the Doug Jones 2017 race, we we ran a write-in campaign for Nick Saban. Mm. And so you know, we ran ads showing how to write Nick Saban's name in, and, and actually in, in Lee County, which Auburn is, how to write Gus Malzahn's name in. That, 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 uh, yeah, I, you I, wouldn't want to
1: do you wouldn't want to do Nick Saban in Auburn. That's I, I think that was smart.
2: Right. Well, uh, and right. and, and they, by the <laughs> way, they got twenty two thousand votes between them. <laughs> But uh, more listen, than re- won by? But you, I, I, you, I totally think it would be a good idea if I thought it worked. I wouldn't have an I wouldn't have an issue with it at all.
1: This is also for you, Ryan from Illinois. I'm a forty year old lifelong Democrat. My dad was a coal miner in central central Illinois, and I still have fond memories of the Bill Clinton presidency. Would Bill Clinton be able to run
2: on his own policies in today's era? Shit woody th- this this is like what we found out in November. Is This is Bill Clinton's America, not AOC's America. The minimum wage carried 60% in Florida, all right? That people aren't... The, 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 read Tom Etzel this morning, who is a guy that you and I both are, uh, almost worship, all right? He's right up there with Clyburn. Yeah, he's right up there with I'll hey, Listen to Jim Clyburn, all right? Listen to Jim Clyburn, what he said after the election. I, I And I mean... I. This lurch to the left, you know, even, you know, President Obama said that, you know, that defund the police was not helpful. Look, in 2018, there were three words protect pre existing conditions. That stuck with people. In 2020, there were three words defund the police. That stuck with people. So I, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the Clinton Obama policies. Are the policies that the across the breadth of the country that, that are embraced, and across the Democratic Party they are embraced. So I, I don't have no. I have I and, and I and, and the, the experience in 2018 and 2020 has just borne this out.
1: Well, I I, I agree, and that leads us into a question from Judith, uh, who is from Stockport, Ohio. She says correctly. Young people face a scary future thanks to climate change, the two-step-forward, one-step-back routine that's been going on for years. It's not going to be sufficient. Uh, aren't AOC and others right to demand something to be done? Well, of course they're right to demand something to be done. It's just, I think, often what they ask to be done, A, is not achievable, and B, may not even be desirable. I I am for a greatly expanded uh, Affordable Health Care Act. I think there ought to be a public option. I think people under 65 ought to be to, able to buy into Medicare. I'm for doing something about drug prices. Uh, I think there are all sorts of things you can do. I am not for a Medicare for All that takes away the option of private insurance. And I'm not for it. I don't think it's good policy, but what I know is it's lousy politics. So, yes, they're right, Judith. that They, they ought to
2: demand something. It's just a case of what they demand. So... There, there, there are two screaming policies that dwarf everything else that's not going to war, which is, not, uh, is always a possibility, and that is the massive inequality and massive climate issues we have. So s- something must be done. This is something. Ergo, this must be done. That is the most flawed logic in the world, all right? Right. Well, we talk about inequality. We talked about on this show, which I think is the best single idea to deal with inequality, and that is baby bonds. Yeah. All right, that is something you know. That is something smart that can be done. And, and the, the, the you know that that is, and of course the 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 person from Ohio is exactly right. These these problems are are, are really really deep and really profound. But that there are really smart, intelligent ways you can. It, it, what it boils down to, and I was in my last class of my students, and, I, and, and this whole idea might people question this very premise that people like me, and I think I would include you in there. You're welcome to dissent if you want to. Believe that by the application of smart policy, can the government can give people a better life, a better chance in life. Or greater opportunities. I fundamentally believe that. Now, that belief, that core belief, is 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 kind of under attack. That you're not going, James, you're not going to do it through the through the very system. You have to blow the thing up. Or you, you have to start with socialism, or you have to blow up every. You, you, and that 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 is the essence. That is the basis of Clintonism or Obamaism. That yes, you can do things that are smart, and if you do smart things can lead people to have a better life. All right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean,
1: of course, and it's been proven. You know, since since the New Deal, ah. if not before that. And you know, those who who say that, those that the Tea Party types. Uh, when you go back at them and say, well, you know, maybe we wouldn't end Social Security. Oh, well, maybe we wouldn't end Medicare. Well, no, we wouldn't uh, dismantle. We wouldn't turn all of our swords into plowshares. And, yeah, you've got to have a, uh, air traffic controllers. It seems that they really are going after programs that serve poor people, but they're they're not going to succeed. Course, they, 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 this they, is the final don't. question, though. This is from Bluebell, Pennsylvania, James. Oh,
2: wow. No, and Bluebell. this is,
1: again, this is good for you. Should... Make America great again, people, be given seats at the table under Biden. Could he see the value of doing what Lincoln did, friends, close, enemies, closer?
2: Well, first of all, somebody's going to have to have a seat at the table because they either got 52, 51, or 50 Senate votes. And somebody's going to have to have a seat at the table because you only got like a five-person majority in the House. So, uh, man, I think that that Biden understands that. But— that it's just what you, what you dealt with is the same thing Lincoln was dealing with. Is you dealt with the reality of politics, and the reality of politics is you're going to have to make deals with people that you find distasteful or you don't like. But I, 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 that that cannot be helped. And not even to mention the federal court system that you got that's yeah. looming heavily over you every day. So I don't think there's a choice here. Yeah,
1: I, I agree. Really don't. Uh, you know, you can't get. Unless, even if you go and the Democrats are lucky enough to win two seats in Georgia, uh, it's going to be very hard to get much done legislatively without at least a little Republican help. Uh, So that's the the nature of what the election result was. Uh, You know
2: what? People like me will say, let's get them in 2022 yeah it, it, well, it is, but we're not doomed for four years you know
1: no we're not but let's get done as that's much right. as as we can get done uh, yeah, now yeah, because right, people right. are really hurting
2: and if you can make right. them hurt less awful. Uh, it's a little awful. bit
1: even it's even awful. that's good well keep those keep those cards and letters coming because we really really appreciate it and they're really yeah, good questions and yeah. i hope the answers are almost as
2: good as the questions yeah that's my favorite part of the show yeah
1: Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and Al Hunt. Remember to email your questions, that's James' favorite part of the show, to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Pliticon. Thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning for 2021.